1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: A Living History production.
2: I'm Peter Hart.
3: And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm here with the inimitable Peter Hart.
2: You can pronounce it, that word.
3: I've been practising. Right. It was a choice between that and arse face. Oh yeah,
2: I'd have gone for arse face myself. It's easier to pronounce. Yeah. So what are we doing today Gary? Well
3: today uh, it's the second of our podcasts uh, that uh, try to tell the story of Ian Hamilton, or Sir Ian Hamilton in later life. And this one, rather imaginatively, is called The Middle Years, Ooh. Uh, which is 1881 to 1902, which is not a lot of years to be the middle. How old did he live to? He was about oh. 94. Wasn't yeah, he? he died
2: in 1949, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, that's the middle then. If he'd lived another six years, he'd have been alive when in I the middle. Alive. In the middle yeah um yeah well this is the uh, second of three we'll be doing another one on Gallipoli. our assessment is per- performed at Gallipoli, and then that'll be it um now so so where uh, let let the, uh, yeah well, listen to the first one if you want to know what the first one was about, I think that's good advice, don't you, Gary? yeah, but we, we can lead in
3: after his experiences in India and at Majuba hill oh in India? which featured largely in the uh, first yeah
2: podcast. that's in the first Boer war in Boer war land.
3: In about 1856-ish, something like that. No,
2: Gary.
3: Well, if if that's the middle, it would be. No, Gary, stop being (laughs) literal-minded. I've forgotten when it was, 1881, I think. Well, Ian Hamilton should perhaps have gone to the staff college
2: at Camberley. Yeah. But what happened then? Well, he got a better offer, uh, as far as he was concerned. Sir Frederick Roberts, uh, he's the Commander in Chief of the Madras pre- Presidency in India. He personally asked Hamilton uh, for a Hamilton as his ADC, aide de um, camp. And uh, I quite like Hamilton's response that he had enough bloody studying. He accepted, yes. Yes, 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 yes. So he literally <laughs> burnt his books. Then. He burnt his books. Uh, uh, although he later on got to go back to study. But this is uh, this is quite interesting because it's a big career step. And there's an awful lot of whining in the future about uh, seniority, why he doesn't get the, a better post at, uh, at, uh, in the First World War, the Great War. But um, what would have happened if he'd gone to Camberley, do you think? And this is all speculation.
3: Well... He would perhaps have joined the circle of officers who were associated with General Sir Garnet Wolseley, who were colloquially known as uh, the Africans, so uh, that would imaginatively be the, the Wolseley of the Wolseley Ring. Ooh! So they would they would all be very close to Wolseley's Ring. Yes. Now, <laughs> <laughs> instead, instead, <laughs> Hamilton would become identified with the Indians and. Uh, of Roberts' ring. So, which was a bigger ring? Oh, I think Wolsey had a massive
2: ring. Right. Um, so, um, so in, in essence, in, in the end, Hamilton he doesn't bestride both rings, but he, he does. He's one of the few that uh, that does serve in Africa after after because he'd served in Africa. In he does sort really.
3: of claim a foot in both camps, though, doesn't he?
2: Uh, but there's a lot of antipathy in his heart against uh, against uh, the Walsley ring. Uh, it really and and if you read his writings he's always slagging Walsley and uh, Redbour's Buller who is General Sir Redbour's Buller who is the a big a, he's a big ringer. <laughs> he's a big
3: part of the Walsley ring. Yes. Uh, now on the 25th of February 1882 Hamilton's promoted
2: to captain and in the same month he sets off for India. So as an ADC to, to uh, Roberts, he becomes a member of the household. Uh, an ADC is like a, a gopher, isn't it? You must have had one when you worked for TFO. You must have had a gopher. Wasn't he called Chris Carling? Something like that. <laughs> and uh, once part of the household, it, it gets very
3: friendly, doesn't it? And and Hamilton acquires the nickname of Johnny. Quite yes. where that comes from,
2: I'm not sure. Uh, yes, and, and uh, you see books called Johnny Hamilton. There's a, a appalling book on Hamilton called Johnny Hamilton. Uh, it really is dreadful. Um, but yes, he's uh, that becomes his life. Uh, that's a nickname for the rest of his life. Um, so what's he doing? He's, he's doing more than just gophering, isn't he? What else does he do?
0: Well,
3: he's writing speeches, preparing dispatches, and that's all part of his official duty. But his main role was as Assistant Adjutant General of Musketry at Army Headquarters.
2: Now there, he, uh, he's Madras Presidency, so that's not of the British forces, this is of the Indian forces, the Indian army ones uh, um the native army, army in the terminology of the time and not our terminology particularly, so what does he do what as because uh, this is um, i mean he, it doesn't sound very important assistant general but what does he what is it what does he start doing well he
3: he rewrote the whole of the musketry regulations for the Indian regiments and claimed to have initiated a revolution in musketry training based on the, his uh, vivid experience at Majuba Hill and the Afghan wars. He worked his
2: ideas up into a book called The Fighting of the Future. Now, I'd, I'd like to read that, and I haven't read it. I, I want to make clear that the comments we're going to make are based on uh, what people have said and what Hamilton said is in, in his other books. Um, so what is the emphasis that he puts in this? in this? Well, clearly, it's on
3: the improved marksmanship of the individual soldier, not the massed volley. Hamilton, he detailed the training required on the rifle ranges, and, and we'll go through them. Uh, one was the ab- abolition of obscure barrack
2: square drill movements and
3: instead concentrate on the basic skills of
2: rifle shooting. So the idea is to build up the individual's confidence at ranges of up to 200 yards. That's 600 feet, Gary.
3: Thank you. Yes, and slower
2: and more deliberate firing at longer ranges, to, with the idea of hitting things. Right, it's a novel as opposed to just blazing off. I mean, volley flying. Uh, I mean, if you watch uh, Napoleonic things, it's just a matter of fire low and just aim straight ahead of you at, at a mass of the enemy. But this is about uh, this is about hitting individuals. Yeah. What else well, snap shooting at jumping up targets at different unpredictable ranges, and then the last one I really like is he had his men shooting at uh, barrels that were rolling and bounding downhill towards the fire <laughs> and that's uh, uh that's to, again. It's to overcome the instinct to shoot wild and high. I, I wonder how many were injured. During that time.
3: Mm. Now, using these methods, the Indian regiments began to outclass British battalions in their
2: shooting skills. But I think we ought to point out this is from an extremely low base. Uh, so they don't all become expert marksmen straight away. We're talking about a very low level of shooting skills uh, before he started. Now, is this noticed by those in
3: authority? Well, in some cases, yes, the Duke of Cambridge saw the rapid and demonstrable improvement of the Indian Army and took steps to see that Hamilton's system should become the basis for musketry training throughout the British Army. But this took time. Now, there was other evidence of modern thinking in in the book. Uh, Hamilton also predicted the demise of the cavalry. Which he proposed should be converted to mounted infantry straight away.
2: Well, in that, that, that's, that's the diametric opposite of Haig. Haig, that's exactly in, what I thought. Cause Haig, was against mounted infantry, which he said weren't very good at riding and weren't very good at being infantry. Well, he said they weren't very good at anything. Even and and he after wanted the cavalry to be trained to do everything, to be the perfect soldier, capable of infantry fighting and uh, and of course using the arme blanche, uh, which we now know only had a short life. But at the time was uh, was uh, was I think to be honest, Haig's right and Hamilton's wrong, and certainly the British army. Did away with mounted infantry, uh, if you like.
3: Now, another thing he predicted uh, was the end of the forward deployment of field artillery, where the crews were vulnerable to accurate long-range rifle
2: fire. Fewer guns of a heavier caliber were his suggestion at this time. Well, we've talked about this again, uh, and, uh, the, the, he's probably right. And so they did, they, they need both. They need lots and lots of both. Uh, but, uh, I, I think Le Cateau is the best example of what happens if you put, uh, if you put field guns close to, uh, people who can shoot. Uh, cause, uh, they were, they were wiped out just about the, uh, one, one, one artillery brigade was wiped out when it, was it, 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 put in line with the infantry. So I think that's, uh, that's, uh, Very, very important. Well, it's not just uh, writing military treatises, is it, though? Uh, Writing's becoming a very important part of Hamilton's life. And he was uh, experimenting (laughs) with uh, journalism, poetry and fiction. And there's a quote uh, from Ian Hamilton, well, Ian Hamilton then, uh, that you might like to read, Gary.
3: I'd rather write one really sweet and famous sonnet than be QMG in India or even CNC himself. QMG, QMG, Quartermaster General, CNC, CNC. Commander-in-Chief.
2: He's lying.
3: I think he is, actually. (laughs)
2: Because what's he really doing? Well, he's studying hard for his uh, promotion exams at the time. He's looking for promotion to major. Now, this isn't the same as doing staff. Uh, we mentioned he he, wasn't, he burned his books there. But he, you still have to study to pass your major's exams, and that's what he's aiming for.
3: Now, Hamilton was due for six months home leave, and as a new campaign started in the Sudan, he saw the chance for more active service.
2: Now, this is, again, this this is very similar to Hager. The, these people have got similar trajectories. Their paths cross a lot, don't they? Well, All of them. Yeah. All of them, yes, that's the best way. Uh, in the Sudan, as we heard in our, our thing on Hague in the Sudan, uh, an Islamic prophet, the Mahdi, had taken control and destroyed all forces sent against him. Uh, at this, uh, General Ch- Sir Charles Gordon had been sent to Khartoum in January uh, 1884, uh, and, and he was meant to uh, organize an orderly withdrawal from Khartoum, uh, but instead, <laughs> He, he sort of stayed with the people and uh, allowed himself to be besieged by the Mardy. That led to a huge shit-hitting the fan back in England. Uh, Gladstone was totally against any sort of relief ex- uh, expedition, but uh, he was his hand was forced by public opinion. Uh, so what happens?
3: General Sigarnet Wolseley was placed in charge and conceived of a slow and deliberate advance along the Nile. In conjunction... With an additional camel-borne desert column, hmm.
2: so two, uh, yeah. Then that column uh, just, but well, that was Redvers Buller's job, uh, yeah. So what happens to Hamilton? He arrives at Suez, Port Suez, in uh, October eighteen eighty-four, and he was lucky enough, by influence, to get a post into the first Gordon Highlanders. Uh, now this is all despite his status as an Indian officer, and this is an African campaign. Uh, and that's interesting because Hamilton has his own influence. And I think it's his reputation gained from, uh, from Majuba that, 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 that facilitates him an exception to the general rule being made for him. Now we now have a, what, what, what happens? Um, uh, um, he, he's put, what, what has he done? What, what's his job? Well, his company, uh, they're, they're going with the, on the Nile Park, the river boat expedition uh, read uh, churchill wrote a great book on this and he's going up the nile in 11 small boats with his company and you've got a quote that just lets us it gives us a really good picture of it doesn't it
3: this is ian hamilton our feelings were as nearly as possible those of a party of boy scouts dressed up like red indians and let loose in a flotilla of canoes each boat of eight rowers a poleman and a coxswain was and had to be a self-supporting, independent unit. At the best, the company got together about once in ten days when the negotiation of a cataract called called for you combined yes called for combined efforts on the drag ropes or for portage of stores. If a boat failed to put in an appearance at the rendezvous, the captain had to unload his own boat and thus lightened row back down the river to find the lame duck and help it along. The tale has the ring of glorious adventure, and so it was, only at the time it was incessant toil, much of it waist-deep in water, bad food, broken nights, the lack of any drink but sand and water, the resultant scurvy, all these uh, wore health and nerves to fiddle-strings. Never in their whole lives had the men worked so hard. The mere thought of such a job would make a modern labour union call a strike— Yet there was no crime, no stinting of effort, no grumbling. Bollocks. Well, soldiers never complain, never grumble. They observe a lot. They observe an awful lot.
2: Now, uh, two things about that. uh, One is that's bollocks, that they do grumble. And uh, the second thing is, uh, notice that he wrote that, this is uh, from his book, uh, uh, Listen to the Drums or something. Uh, and, uh, And, of course, Boy Scouts. There were no Boy Scouts then. There weren't any Boy Scouts till Baden Powell formed them in about 1908, and it's interesting to that that did, when I chose this quote, it didn't spring out. But while I was listening to you, you know, as usual, listening for errors and mistakes in you, I thought Boy Scouts. Although he would have written that much later, he did right. That's what I mean. But he's he's they didn't at the time think this is like being in the Boy Scouts. That's in retrospect.
3: Now, also for Hamilton, the real work was done by the four. British battalions and their Egyptian auxiliaries of the river column. But all the glory went to the desert column. Hamilton roundly condemned Wolseley for this fanciful idea of sending a separate column across the desert as he felt all resources should have been concentrated along the river.
2: Yeah, in the end, it's all for nothing, uh, as Khartoum actually fell and Gordon was killed on the 26th of January, uh, 1885. Um, When when we... We're, we're, well, let's let's leave our points. But you notice Hamilton's got it in for Walsey all the time. He's got it in for Redvers Buller as well. Um, so what happens to the river column, Gary?
3: Well, General Earl, who's the commander of the river column, pushed ahead with a personal escort that included Hamilton's D Company, First Gordon Highlanders. On the 10th of February, they reached the village of uh, Kerbican, and found an entrenched dervish host barring their
2: path. Now, this is interesting because, uh, General is not a modern general. He's a real old school. He believed in old formations, close, close, you know, uh, he was just a disciplinarian, but he was old school, real old school. But he also, was an aggressive general. They went straight into the attack, they advanced directly along the riverbank, used a steady fire of the infantry to pin the enemy to their positions and then Earl led the rest of them uh, in a sort of uh, enveloping movement along a desert valley, got behind Kerbiken Ridge and stormed the dervish uh, lines from the rear. And this is a quote that I'm going to read of Hamilton that sort of gives you the picture. And he says this, in open attack formation, our men went for them, destroyed their grand counterattacked of spearmen by fire and then stormed the heights from the rear. No one escaped. A few dozen desperate fugitives leapt, le- le- leapt into the raging Nile, but it is doubtful if any got across. In the morning, the dervish leader held us, so he thought, in the hollow of his hand. When the sun was low, he was dead. His warriors were dead. Their bodies formed an outline like a huge, sprawling snake marking the line of the spearman's ante. Or else they lay bayoneted in their rifle pits. Wow. And uh, again, uh, one of the things is... Uh, this is people armed with spears against people armed with Martini Henrys or whatever they were. I think it was Martini, but the, the, it's not a fair fight, is it? No. Uh, and uh,
3: sadly, Earl himself is killed, even as he triumphs.
2: Yes, he was. He was. He, I think he looked in at, at a hut and was shot from within. Uh, anyway, um, now what? So the river column that's then under the command of General Henry Brackenbury, and uh, they they continue to move up river uh, Gordon's dead by now. We mentioned that, but he, they're still seeking to break the power of the Mahdi um so what happens well it weren't to be um
3: Redvers Buller and the desert column were obliged to fall back and although the river column had almost reached Abu Hamid where the river became easily passable Brackenbury ordered the retreat he took a seat in Hamilton's boat uh with uh, Hamilton at the helm and as they began the return journey Hamilton greatly criticised the manner in which Wolseley had directed the campaign and the division of his forces. He was convinced that Roberts would have been a far more dynamic commander who would never have permitted the dilettante experiment of the
2: desert climb. Now, this is where it's time to make a few general points about Hamilton. Hamilton, in a sense, was an acolyte of Churchill in that he would write his own history. And throughout his life, he wrote his own history. A lot of the sources on Hamilton are who? Hamilton. Yeah. And whose side is Hamilton on in the Wolsey ring versus Roberts ring? Roberts. Very and, strongly. And so therefore, perhaps not everything should be taken as what Hamilton says. Are you suggesting he may have been biased? Yes, he was biased and it, it shows throughout his career. He is part of the Indian ring. He is... Uh, Definitely biased against Redvers Buller, against Wolsey. And uh, and I think before you just accept what he says, you need to do some more research. As do you, Gary, and as do I. It was at this time Hamilton was
3: given the rank of Brevet Major. Just explain
2: that to me again. Uh,
3: it's local rank, so he's still a substantive captain and would be recognised outside of uh, the the area as such as as will be clear in a moment so he's given the rank of brevet major and he returned to resume his duties as ADC to Sir uh, Frederick Roberts who is now commander in chief
2: of India now Hamilton made a big impression on a young callow lad <laughs> on one of his first postings uh you, you might recognize the name from gallipoli william birdwood heard never of heard of him yeah well he's uh he's uh, he's sailing now on his first posting to india in june 1885 and what does he think of uh hamilton
3: we had with us also a captain ian hamilton of the gordon highlanders In the eyes of us youngsters, Ian Hamilton already wore a halo of glory by virtue of his service in the Afghan war – the Boer War of 1881, and the Nile Expedition.
2: And that's it. And this is something we keep banging home. Uh, This is a man of experience who's led a military career that is not just Gallipoli. Uh, Nor, by the way, is Birdwood's career just Gallipoli. They're they're all men with long careers, aren't they?
3: And also the fact that people are starting to admire his service, his active service, and that becomes more relevant later in his career when even the Germans thought he was the best qualified uh, British
2: and, and this is uh, 30 years before Gallipoli. Absolutely. Now, uh, shortly after he arrived, uh, Roberts is posted, uh, detached off to operations in Burma, where the military commander, General McPherson, had died from fever. Uh, Britain had cheerfully annexed Burma in 1886. Uh, with uh, And that was to avenge several outrages, Gary, against uh, British citizens and business interests. Uh, and following uh, the, 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 the... They refused... Uh, uh, they, they, they were said we'll establish, the British Empire said, we'll establish a protectorate here. Uh, the Burmese refused that and uh, and uh, fighting broke out. Uh, I think of any, does this remind you of a peace-loving British Empire bringing peace to the world? Yes. No, I think it's more that of an evil empire. Uh, <sighs> well, we have to be ambivalent about the British Empire. It, it, it's good and bad in parts. And uh, it's just not nice to certain areas it wasn't nice the Burmese politics with Pete and Gary oh.
3: Hamilton was on the staff ostensibly as Persian interpreter did he
2: meet any Persians I shouldn't think <laughs> <In> so Burma <laughs> six brigades
3: of troops were sent out to pacify the turbulent districts of mountain and jungle country the expedition was a success and as an aside they also looted anything not
2: nailed down yes um All told, this is not the British Empire's finest hour, really. Uh, Hamilton's finest hour occurs in 1887. What do I mean by that? Well, he
3: gets married. He marries Jean Muir, who's the daughter of a wealthy Glasgow businessman with extensive interests in India.
2: And there's actually a book about uh, Lady Hamilton uh, written by uh, by the, the, the wife of John Lee, who wrote the book about Hamilton. So, and I recommend that. Uh, sadly, I haven't got it, which is reprehensible in the extreme. In July
3: 1887, Hamilton was given the brevet rank of a lieutenant colonel. Uh, As Commander-in-Chief India, Roberts could now step up his uh, personal war against the British Army's crude rifle training. Hamilton was made Assistant Adjutant General of Musketry for the whole army in India, and the principles he'd laid down in the fighting of the future could be more generally applied
2: now the one thing that's happening is that they're just about to introduce uh, magazine rifles which we see ultimately in the Lee-Enfield uh and these magazine rifles uh, what does that mean what, what 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 does it mean if you have magazine rifle what is more important than ever what is it Gary what good and
3: accurate fire control is now more
2: important than ever and much was achieved and and the standard's do rise still not excessively so, but they're rising. Now uh, Roberts returns to England uh, in uh, 1893, uh, and here he, he gives he gives evidence uh, of, of the improvements have been achieved in in uh, in India, and he finally con- uh, convinces the Home authorities of the need of a, a major reform of the British Army's training. And and uh, Hamilton's role in this shouldn't be underestimated. But I want to make the point we're making as well. It shouldn't be overestimated. Uh, uh, there are other people involved and uh, who wrote uh, most of the things that we're quoting about how brilliant Hamilton is and how, how important he is in the Hamilton. Yeah. Now, um, so uh, Hamilton. now there is evidence now of the, the uh, of the the, the the bad effect of these two competing rings of Indian and African officers. Well, why would I say that?
3: Well, his status as an Indian officer meant he was not promoted to substantive colonel until a sustained campaign, which got as high as the cabinet, finally confirmed Hamilton's promotion to full colonel. I mean, that's unusual, that needing to go as high as it can. Yeah,
2: it just means that there's bias within the system. I mean, we've criticised Hamilton's bias. Well, this is utterly ridiculous bias from the African ring. I mean, it's a two-way process. Both sides are hopelessly biased. It's not healthy, is it? No.
3: Hamilton was then appointed military secretary to the new commander-in-chief India, General Sir
2: George white VC. I will hear about him again. And we heard about him with Hagee, came up in that story. Now, uh, Hamilton plays a part in convincing White, uh, he says he did anyway, in a policy of forward defence. What do I mean by a policy of forward defence for India? You don't understand anything about cricket, but never mind.
3: Well, that India was best defended against the Russians and their tribal friends beyond Kabul and Kandahar in the mountainous regions of the northwest frontier rather on the plains of the
2: Punjab. To keep them out, like a forward defensive cricket, get down the wicket and keep them back as far away as possible. Um, And then uh, something else, something rescues Hamilton from more death duties. Uh, What's that? It's the Chitral, the Siege of uh, Uh, Chitral. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. That's easy for you to say. It is. uh, And and where is Chitral
3: then? Exactly, (laughs) Gary. Uh, It's just 50 miles from the Russian border. The Russian border is
2: very long, Gary. Whereabouts?
3: (laughs) (laughs) just left by that tree. Right. <laughs> uh, now, a relief force under General Sir Robert Lowe was dispatched on the 1st of April 1895. Uh, Hamilton was appointed double-hatted as Assistant Adjutant General and Assistant Quartermaster General.
2: Ah, now, what are they both?
3: Uh, they're both assistants.
2: They're both staff posts. And assistants. Uh, but he hasn't been to staff college. So. Well,
3: Golden Islander, he'll never go.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, yes, what a bunch. Anyway, um, Hamilton's absolutely delighted and he writes to his wife. uh, And this is what he says. I'm saying this to you, Gary. I cannot tell you, darling, what a good thing it will be for me. Just the making of me. Not medals or that sort of thing, I, I don't mean, but teaching me just where I was weakest and afterwards make me just as qualified for service on the home staff as if I would passed the staff college. Well, it doesn't. PSC, past staff college, is more important. But it is vital experience and from now on he is considered for staff postings he might he would have been better off with a proper psc but nevertheless he 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 does get the experience and and it is quite an experience so what does he end up doing well he ends up in charge of the uh, complex logistical
3: arrangements for the expedition moving tens of thousands of pack animals and men through mountain passes under threat of attack
2: now in 1895 uh, hamiltons offered the the post of deputy quartermaster general india by sir sir george white uh, that's another really demanding staff job uh and then Hamilton's appointed to serve commanding the 1st Brigade in the expedition to be led by General Sir William Lockhart to attack the Afridi and other tribes in the Terra This is the Terra campaign, surprising enough. Uh, and, and, and this was uh, for the, those naughty tribes had been continuously lawless. Mm. In other words, they wouldn't accept British rule uh, and uh, had to be punished. And
3: that promised to be his first service as
2: a general officer. Yeah, what? Brigade commander, brigadier general acting. But yeah, that would be good. So what happens? Well, by the 6th of October, 1897,
3: he's at Peshawar, organising his troops for the advance on Coat and crossing the difficult Coat Pass to join General Penn Simmons' 1st Division.
2: Ah, but then disaster strikes. And you're, again, Ian Hamilton.
3: I was riding quietly along when my pony shied at some veiled women on donkeys slipped up on the road and fell bang over on his side. I almost threw myself clear, but was caught by both stirrups in my big shooting boots and uh, he rolled over my leg, smashing it, and then got up and dragged me by the other foot, which had still stuck in. When I jumped to my feet, I felt my leg crack and bend and then it came over me in one bitter instant that the show was at an end for me.
2: Now, who did he give his uh,
3: brigade to? Well it was given to Brigadier General Hart VC. He sounds lovely, doesn't he? Yeah. Then to add to his misery, both fever and dysentery afflicted him.
2: Nothing worse, broken leg and fever and dysentery. I bet
3: going to the loo is fun. Oh yeah. Now his brigade oh sorry. By February he was back in the field. Now command that that's a quick recovery. Now commanding the third brigade, swollen like his leg to seven battalions with an artillery battery and two RE field companies. So that's a, a
2: major force. Uh, now, um, he, he, one thing that's interesting is in preparing his camps for overnight, he, he, uh, he knew about how accurate the, the fire could be. And so the tents were over deep trenches. So, so to, to give the men protection when they were in, in beds, so in beddy they were underground. That's, that's quite modern. Uh, what is he aware of most of
3: all? Well, men armed with modern rifles and smokeless cartridges, it makes snipers, for example, extremely difficult to spot. No smoke. No smoke. Yeah. Well,
2: unless they have a fag. <laughs> yeah, that, that would rather ruin it. Uh, now, some important lessons are being learned, not not just by Hamilton, by lots of officers on, on this com- campaign. Well, what else are they learning?
3: Well, not only have they got to secure their positions with the pick and shovel, and we talked about this before.
2: Where was that? Majuba Hill, Majuba
3: yeah. Hill. Uh, but the fatal consequences of moving in close order. So you have to spread yourself out. For Hamilton, it confirmed everything he'd been saying for years.
2: Now, how did they defeat the Tirah tribes in the end? That other great method, of, other than slaughtering people, what else do the British do? Ride them. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they bribed them to hand in their modern rifles and uh, desist from banditry attacks. This doesn't entirely work because there's lots of other tribes around. And when the British start to march back into India, some of the Afghan tribes uh, harass the columns. It's uh, Hamilton was given the duty with his brigade of protecting the lines of passage for the withdrawal of this some 20,000 British troops by this time. And that's a tricky business. Well, what does Hamilton
3: say about this? To deal with these gentry, the only way we found was to crown the crest lines by dawn with light-armed scouts, mostly Gurkhas, who, carrying nothing but their rifles, cookries, bandoliers and water bottles, and supported by gunfire from our camp, occupied the heights without much trouble. But when they had to disengage themselves in the evening to get back within the shelter of their own camp pickets, then there was the very deuce to pay, the Afridis would come on with shouts and press hard on their heels. So they had to form a second line on the mountainside, two or three hundred yards in rear, and then make a sudden simultaneous bolt to pass through this second line and get back by alternative rushes.
2: So, yeah, I mean, that's fairly standard. I mean, I've heard lots of officers describe that. This isn't Hamilton being original, but it is how it's done. Now, at this point, March 1898, Hamilton is given a choice. What's the choice, Gary?
3: Well, uh, he was invited to become Quartermaster General India at the then fabulous salary of £3,000
2: per annum. And uh, Gary, uh, an expert on currency issues, has worked out that this would be £433,398. In today's money. In today's money. Uh, But on the very same day, he's offered something else.
3: Yeah, same day he's offered uh, the Adjutant General of the British Army uh, Sir Evelyn Wood cabled in with the offer of the interest, interesting post of Commandant of the School of Musketry at Hythe, Kent, at the more modest annual salary of £800. Although,
2: th- to be fair, that is £115,572, can't speak, uh, by your calculations, Gazza.
3: Right, so £3,000 or £800, which one do you think he chose?
2: I, I know what he chose, he chose the latter, what does that show? Well, it
3: shows that he was uh,
2: not motivated by materialism. He was more interested in an interesting post. and, and Well, and mus- his career, to be fair. No, no, he'd have done better to take the other one. School of musketry, mm. though, is fabulous, isn't it? It's, it's perfect for him.
3: Well, it couldn't have been more rewarding to him professionally. No. His ideas on rifle training could now be spread throughout the British Army. So what does he do? Well, in the course of a year, he visited all 11 military districts of the United Kingdom to inspect their efficiency in musketry, and his annual report covered every command, both home and overseas. Blimey, that
2: must have been huge. Yeah, big job, and uh, the British regular soldier, under his direction, uh, fired seven times more ammunition on the ranges at Hyde than any of the conscripts in the European armies, uh, the equivalent conscripts. Uh, and and what, what does this make you think of?
3: Well the astonishing efficiency of the British regulars that poured 15 aim rounds a minute at Mons and Ips in 1914. That's got to have been founded on the pioneering work of Ian Hamilton.
2: It is founded on other people's work and again we're looking at with the, this is slightly through the Hamilton perspective. But, yes, he did vital work towards that. Very, very important. I, I think it was, anyway. Now, uh, he's also involved in the annual manoeuvres uh, in autumn 1898. The, uh, the, the, these were the biggest for 25 years. What were they like? Well, I'm just checking,
3: 1898. Is that still the middle years, Pete? Yes. OK, just checking. Well, in these grand combined manoeuvres... 50,000 troops were deployed in the West Country. I'm just thinking about that. 50,000 troops in the West Country. Hamilton commanded uh, a brigade in the Blue Army, which was led by Sir Redvers Buller, as it opposed the Duke of Connaught's Red Army.
2: That's interesting. So he's in Buller's Army. I thought he hated Buller. Well... He does what he's told, doesn't he? Now, the, the, these, uh, these manoeuvres are quite interesting because there'd been a bit of a return of the British, the old British square. Why was that? Well, it proved itself
3: useful in the current Sudan campaign and some of the older generals were delighted with the
2: excuse to use it. Now, in these exercises, Buller is comprehensively outmanoeuvred and defeated in the war games. Uh, but how does Hamilton's brigade do?
3: well it's it's been handled very skillfully uh, from concealed positions he sent out raiding parties so that repeatedly uh, that repeatedly overran the headquarters and communication systems of the uh, red brigade opposing him uh, that it was at one stage declared to be operationally out of action was uh, hamilton
2: congratulated no <laughs> he was reprimanded for using such unorthodox tactics and at this point
3: we'll take a short break
1: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: The onset of the Boer War was another chance for active service. General Sir George White, VC, an old friend of Hamilton's and firmly in the Roberts ring, that's an unfortunate phrase. Was appointed GOC Natal. Now,
2: Hamilton was appointed to his staff as Assistant Adjutant General. See, th- this is all slightly confusing because uh, how come a Roberts person is a- a- appointed? But there you go. And he's an assistant again. He might as well just add a sign on his desk assistant. It's a big post in Assistant Adjutant General uh, for this force, anyway. And he, he sailed to South Africa on sixteenth September eighteen ninety nine. What's White meant to do? George White meant to do? He well, he's meant to hold the field
3: until Buller's Army Corps arrived to deliver the uh, coup de grace.
2: So the the idea is they'd stop the Boers in their tracks, and then Redvers Buller would arrive and give them Rah! a right kicking, right? Um, now, uh, what does uh, what does Hamilton think about the Boers? Well,
3: after his experience at Majuba Hill, he's well aware that the Boers are a serious opposition.
2: Now, by the time the Boer, well, the Boer ultimatum, now we're not going into how the war started, it expires on the 11th of October, and by this time, White and Hamilton, the the staff, they're moving by train to Ladysmith. Um, Now, what do the Boers do?
3: Well, they assume the offensive, presumably to try for a decision before the arrival of the British reinforcements. Well, they, they
2: can work out that reinforcements are on the way, can't they?
3: Yeah, they struck to the west and the south, hoping to raise up the Cape Afrikaners in their support. But they were soon tied down to besieging the makeshift British and colonial garrisons at
2: Mafeking and Kimberley. So they, that sort of sucks in their forces. They don't have. They've got to surround them and neutralize them. Yeah. Uh, now the other chief offensive was into the Natal, which is uh, which is where Hamilton is, uh, and with, uh, that's aiming for the vital port of Dur- Durban. Uh, now, the, the military good sense probably said they should have been opposed along the line of the Tugela River, but the the governor of Natal, Apollon. Insisted that the northern part of the colony had to be defended. Uh, White would have settled for Ladysmith as his base, but the temporary local commander, which was Major General Penn, Simmons, had had already moved a sizeable force up to the railway line, up the railway line to Dundee. Uh, And then there's a further thing, is they also have to send some of White's field force back to defend the capital at uh, Maritzburg. So there's a diffusion of force going on here. Um, So what happens next? Major
3: General Archibald Hunter, he's now arrived from India to take over as Buller's chief of staff and took over in that capacity to uh, Sir George White until Buller arrived.
2: So pending, so he's got nothing to do, so he takes Hamilton's job. So what does that mean Hamilton has to do? Hamilton hasn't got a job then, so what, what does he do? Well,
3: Hamilton's delighted to assume command of 7th Infantry Brigade with the local rank of Major General. Wow. His old battalion, 2nd Gordon Highlanders, was now under his authority, together with two other battalions just over from India, the 1st Devons and the 1st Manchester's.
2: Now, he begins three days' intensive training, uh, pressing home his theories of musketry, fire control, fire and movement, all the rest of it. I'm not sure he can – I mean, they make a big thing of this in in one of the books I read, but I'm not sure three days makes that much difference. Oh, it it does. Oh, it does. Bollocks. Yes, exactly.
3: (laughs) The Boards, they close in on the brigade at Dundee, and they'd soon got behind them, and they cut the railway at Eland's
2: Lugged. Oh. On the 20th of October, Penn Simmons was mortally wounded as he led his infantry in the storming of Talana Hill, uh, and that puts the encroaching uh, Boers to, to flight. It's a very confusing fight, that, and I am confused by it. But um, well, vict- I'm
3: confused, now I get a word like, luck, and you get Talana
2: Hill. Yeah, it's not fair. The, the victors are ordered back to Ladysmith, uh, and to cover them, Sir John French's cavalry, we've heard of him. Sir John French? Oh, who's with him? Douglas Haig, was ordered to turn the bars out of... Where was it, Gary? e lands That's it. But he found them to be in much greater force than expected, and he wires for assistance. So who's sent to assist
3: him? Well, White sends uh, reinforcements of Hamilton's brigade and two artillery b- batteries, and they begin to arrive in the late morning of 21st of October. Hamilton swiftly appraised the Boer position, and both White and French deferred to his
2: plan of action. The Boers uh, held the eastern arm of a uh, horseshoe-raped. Sh-raped? Horseshoe-raped. <laughs> Horseshoe-shaped <shutter laughs> Ridge that ends in a sort of copje. And, and Hamilton set the Devons for, uh, to assault the ridge frontally, while the Manchesters went for the hill bit, uh, with the Gordon Highlands on their right, seeking to turn round the enemy position. Now, I understand that means absolutely nothing, and I'm also not going to put a map up. You can bugger off, listener. Uh,
3: Excellent. Now, they were supported by dismounted troopers of the Imperial Light Horse, while French kept the Fifth Lancers and a mounted squadron of the ILH in hand.
2: That was uh, intending to exploit any success, I presume.
3: Yeah. Hamilton, uh, he put into practice the very wide, very loose formations his men had been rehearsing under his direction. The Devons deployed with three yards between each man going forward and 450 yards between each attacking wave.
2: Now, they're advancing in rushes with sections firing and moving alternately in support of one another, while the artillery are heavily sheltering the ridge with shrapnel. This all reminds me of fire and movement and uh, SOM tactics.
3: Yep, yeah. now they had to cover nearly two miles, and as they drew closer, the Boer Mausers drove them to ground to seek cover and catch their
2: breath. Now, meanwhile, the Manchester and Gordons had begun their ascent of the hill at the, at the other end of the ridge, and uh, there they encounter again something that reminds us of the Great War. What do they encounter? Well, lines of farmers' wire uh occasionally
3: held up them up. Uh, and and there was also a, a thunderstorm, long
2: since threatening, which burst over the battlefield. Now they managed to get to the top, but there's some wavering uh, and, and and just as they get to the top, somebody dashes forward. Who's that? That's
3: Hamilton, according to Hamilton. Uh, ordering, no, no, no. <laughs> and everybody else <laughs> uh, ordering the buglers to sound the charge. In uh, and he inspired his men, and they charged home and gained the
2: crest. Now then, there's a, one of those cockups. Uh, the, the 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 Boers start to surrender. There's a white flag. The British sound the ceasefire. But then uh, it, it's a misunderstanding. A party of fifty. Boars had no intention of surrendering, and they fire onto the rela- <laughs> relaxing British, and this causes a bit of a bloody panic. And and who saves the day again? Well, Hamilton he he rallies his men, uh, and just
3: then the Devons they come storming up the ridge to put the Boers to flight, who were then uh, lanced by French's cavalry and you're going to tell us what ian hamilton says about that encounter
2: it was a stiff fight a remnant of the Boers fought most desperately to the last and it required every effort from everyone to pull it off to the very end fellows seemed pleased with the infantry tactics horrible night rain in torrents icy wean icy weaned icy wind ceaseless moans and groans from the wounded nearly frozen entered tent in Boer camp and luckily struck a match before lying down as I found two dead Boers and the head and neck of a dead horse in the tent. Jobby.
0: Isn't
3: Victorian punctuation wonderful?
2: It is. It can absolutely bugger you.
3: Mm. Now, Sir John French personally recommended Hamilton for the Victoria Cross for twice showing the way forward to the attacking infantry. But unfortunately, while he'd been too young and junior, junior at Majuba... He's now too senior.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, the detachment at Dundee were then escorted safely back to Ladysmith, just in time for the Boers to close around the town. And what begins then? Well, uh, Hamilton... Uh, well, it's the siege.
3: But uh, Hamilton, he'd been keen to attack the main lager of the besieging Boers, which had been reported as poorly defended. White originally agreed... But then he called off the operation in favor of a large- scale attack on the Boar's main position on Pepworth Hill to the north of Ladysmith
2: now Hamilton argues uh, he says the troops are too tired for such a major attack. He would have preferred just a more minor spoiling attack uh, that they'd be vulnerable to enfilade fire from surrounding hill and uh, white he's cross at Hamilton, but he, he agrees uh, but then uh, uh, then then uh, uh, then I'm afraid white orders. He just sends out, without consultation, sends out several columns against the Boers to the north and the result is Mournful Monday, which is the Battle of Ladysmith on the 30th of October, 1899. Uh, uh, what, mournful Monday, is that, is that bad for the Boers then?
3: I shouldn't think so. I think it's more mournful for us. Only Hamilton's brigade came away with any semblance of order.
2: According to who?
3: Well, presumably Hamilton. <laughs> White then merely maintained a passive defence and he awaited Bullard's relief
2: force. Now, Hamilton's given command of, uh, of the largest sector of defence, of Lady Smith, some five miles long. He's only got a 1,000 men to, to defend their position at any one time because, you know, he's got more... He- you can't have everyone in the line all the time. He kept his main forces back in a series of small forts along an inner edge of a plateau that's Ladysmith. He's got a 500 to 800 yard field of fire for the defenders. But because they're back in the forts, they're sheltered from the Boer artillery. He's also got a line of outposts and sentries watching the outer edge of the perimeter. And a telephone, set up a telephone network to allow for warnings back to White's headquarters. So he sets out his defences well, doesn't he? A competent soldier. After a skirmish on the 7th of November, a heavy attack on the 9th of
3: November, which lasted for most of the day, was decisively repulsed. This both encouraged the defenders and discouraged the Boers from further attacks for several weeks. And I'm going to to, uh, relate what Ian Hamilton said. Oh, this must be in a letter to his wife. I fear, darling that you must have been anxious. As a matter of fact, this shelling is unpleasant, but not really formidable. This house has been most unlucky. We got one enormous six-inch shell into the lawn, and then another 97-pound shell from a six-inch crew gun hit the end of the dining room on the ground floor at eight o'clock precisely, just in fact as we should have been sitting down to breakfast. You would laugh if you saw the room, the flooring is simply ripped up and jammed through the ceiling. That's hilarious. Of the long table, nothing is left at all, and of the chair i sit in, nothing certainly is made as big as a match. The doors are torn off, torn off their hinges, and all glass, pictures, crockery, etc., simply ground into powder.
2: That must have cheered his wife up enormously. I oh, bet she loved letters <laughs> like that, don't you? Hello, darling. Bang. As Buller uh, now meanwhile Buller's and his corps are beginning the approach march uh, to the Tagala River. Uh, uh, as they get closer, the Ladysmith garrison they can become a bit more aggressive and carry out some raids and the ball gun positions. Um, uh, Hamilton wants to launch a, a breakout battle, but he's overruled by White. Uh, however, then the wheels come off, don't they? Why? Why is that? What happens in December? Well, there's a string of heavy defeats. At We've
3: Col- heard about this before. Colenso. Margus Fontaine and Stormberg and that's really deeply depressing for the defenders of Ladysmith Buller told White that if he couldn't hold out he should fire off his ammunition and seek terms from the enemy
2: now George White, V.C., has no intention of leading 12,000 soldiers into captivity and he treats the message with the contempt he feels it, it, it deserves. Um, now, at this point, ha- Buller is actually putting the boot into Hamilton. He's, uh, he, he doesn't like him uh, and, and probably because he knows Hamilton's been bad-mouthing him. It is a mutual process, this, uh, and uh, he uh, considers Hamilton a bad influence on, on, on White and, and to be uh, mad basically, which is very rude of him. Hmm. Um, Now, there is good news for Hamilton. What's that? Well, that
3: Lord Roberts was placed in supreme command in South Africa and Buller was left with
2: responsibility for the Natal campaign alone. Now, the Boers make one last attempt to crack the Ladysmith defences, but uh, Hamilton's defensive arrangements prove sound, the lines hold, uh, and and the Boers are actually routed. Rooted. Routed. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Routed. Defeated. Um, so what's happening to Buller? Well, he suffers another defeat at Spion Cop. Spion. Spion. <laughs> Think of the Copites.
3: But the overall pressure was beginning to crack the Boer morale in the towel. Soon, they were streaming away from the Tugela and from the lines around Ladysmith. On the 28th of February, cavalry from Buller's force under Hubert Gough, we've heard, heard of, him. of
2: him, ended the 122-day siege. Now, Lord Roberts, he asks for Hamilton's help uh, as an individual uh, to join his staff, and soon Hamilton's on his way to Cape Town. Uh, There, he's given a really impressive force. What's that, Gary? Well, he takes
3: command of a newly created division of mounted infantry and infantry, 10,000 strong, with the task of moving along some 10 to 20 miles east of the main columns, covering Roberts' flank and uncovering the flank of the enemy facing him.
2: Now, after three weeks of organising and training... Uh, his division begins to advance. Uh, they were augmented by uh, a cavalry brigade, a mounted infantry brigade, two infantry uh, brigades, one commanded by Smith Dorian. Heard of him as you well. Heard of him? And thirty-eight guns. So it's a, it's got, it's a really, really big uh, force. And what's his real rank? Well, he's acting as a lieutenant general, and his subordinates clearly
3: appreciate it. He's just a colonel. And this is what Smith Dorian says. From now on, I enjoyed every moment of the campaign. He was a delightful leader to follow, always definite and clear in his instructions, always ready to listen and willing to adopt suggestions, and what's more important, always ready to go for the enemy, extremely quick at seizing a tactical advantage and
2: always in a good temper just like me. His division pushed forward to great effect on the right flank, constantly uncovering the Poe's flank. And I think that, well, we think they played a key part in the attack on Johannesburg, which falls on the 30th of May. And I'm going to be Ian Hamilton. He says this, and this is quite impressive. We have had all the fighting Since we left Blomfontein, we have marched 401 miles on the map. That is to say, really, at least 450. We've had 10 general engagements and 18 sharp skirmishes and 10 days halt. We've been 45 days on the job. The great fights were houtenek, Zand River and Johannesburg. The last name was a fine fight. The front of our infantry extending over five miles of country and the Gordons attacking and charging with a bayonet in the most splendid style. My poor mounted infantry are in a sad plight. We had 35,000 and now they are barely 2,000. They've had only, they have had only their one shirt on their back since Bloemfontein and are in utter rags. And of course, eaten up with vermin. Some of the men ride in naked feet and spurs; their boots having given out. The ponies too have no shoes and are very foot sore. What do you say to that? Wow! I mean, that is incredible. It is thirty-five thousand
3: now, barely two thousand.
2: They're not all dead; they've just dropped out. No, but can you imagine the state they're in? Yeah. Now Pretoria falls on the fifth of June, and uh, they're then trying the British try and push the 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 Boers further back. The Germans, the Germans, the board. There were some Germans with them. There were two Germans on them. All oh, right. Uh, Push them back so that they can't retake it. And uh, what follows is the Battle of Diamond Hill, as it's called, which is on a hill uh, on the eleventh, twelfth of June. And Hamilton's right in the thick of it, and so's somebody else we know. Uh, what does he say? This is what Ian Hamilton says:
3: The key to the battlefield lay on the summit, but nobody knew it until Winston. He means Churchill somehow managed to give me the slip and to climb this mountain most of it being dead ground to the Boers. thus it was that from his lofty perch winston had the nerve to signal me if i remember right with his handkerchief on a stick that if i could only manage to gallop up at the head of my mounted infantry we ought to be able to rush the summit at that moment another message was handed in from sir john french saying that our extreme left was falling back A strong counterstroke seemed, therefore, as if it might come in the nick of time, so I called up my men and jumped onto my little black whaler. Before I had got my right foot into the stirrup, luckily, a blow like the punch from a fist of a giant struck my right shoulder and I was flung out of the saddle. A shrapnel bullet had struck me, but the range being extreme had only decorated my back with a big black and blue bruise. So on we galloped. Paul Carew and the guards followed suit, and we were right in among the Boers, firing from horseback a most glorious scrimmage before they knew where they were, and lo and behold the left flank of the Boers was turned. Looks quite simple, doesn't it, on paper? Louis Botha himself told us in his memoirs how he'd been on the point of delivering a crushing blow at French and his cavalry on our extreme left.'
2: And that's another great... I mean, there he is, an officer taking part right in the front line, a bold, aggressive soldier. Someone to admire. Now, the Boer leaders are just starting to consider surrender. What what does Hamilton think? Well, he he
3: strongly favoured the uh, lenient approach to the Boers, but Roberts took the harder line of insisting on unconditional surrender, especially for prominent Boer leaders.
2: Now, on 23rd of June that year, Hamilton has another accident. He breaks his collarbone, falling off his horse, and his division goes to Major General Hunter. Uh, on his recovery, Hamilton's given a, another division of infantry and mounted infantry, and uh, made a a local lieutenant general, and his pay jumps to seven pound a day. What's that? Well, that's about a thousand pound in today's value. Ow, ow, ow. A like,
3: day. Yeah, that's that's what you get. <laughs> oh, I wished. Now, the uh, year of guerrilla action might have been avoided if a more enlightened policy had been pursued. Hamilton was involved in chasing the elusive boars around South, A- South Africa to little real effect. They disappeared like will-o'-the-wisps. And Hamilton's overall p- performance was considered excellent, though.
2: So within the fact they couldn't catch him, it was still...
3: It was still performing. And Lord Roberts says this...
2: Ah, Ian Hamilton is quite the most brilliant commander I have served under. Me, he shares with Paul Carew the love and admiration of all his force. He takes infinite trouble in matters of detail and knows his work thoroughly. He is most careful to assure himself exactly what is he is required to do. He is very intelligent, entiring in the performance of his duty, and he has and he has that military instinct which would which would enable him to appreciate when a risk should be run in order to achieve some given objective. I would select him before all others to carry out any difficult operation, like Gallipoli, I expect.
3: Yeah, and the word untiring. Yeah. That was difficult, wasn't it? Yeah, it so? was. I find that very difficult. Now, Roberts was to succeed Lord Wolseley as Commander-in-Chief and he asked Hamilton to be his military That's of secretary. That's the whole British Army, is it? Yeah, and he asked Hamilton to be his military sec- secretary as a confirmed Major General.
2: That means, yes, well, Protestant
3: or? Yeah. Now, convinced that the war in South Africa was all but over, uh, Roberts left Cape Town for London on the 11th of December, taking Ian Hamilton with him. Lord Kitchener was left in command of the army, uh, a long and thankless task lay ahead of him.
2: It certainly did. And uh, yes, it was a terrible campaign. So Hamilton's back in London on the 2nd of January 1901. And he's given a, uh, him and Roberts are given a tumultuous welcome. Uh, he's lionized, isn't he, in high society. Uh, and he's one of the most successful generals in a war where not many had been successful. Uh, uh, but it's not long before he's required for active service again. How come that? Well, because the guerrilla phase was
3: proving exhausting, costly and politically disastrous, as the policy of concentrating mm, bore civilians into camps led to deaths on a large scale among the non-combatants. Roberts made the tentative suggestion that Kitchener might like Hamilton to serve as his, as his chief of staff, and the offer was accepted on the 5th of November, and Lord Kitchener said this, I'm extremely grateful. There is nothing I would like better. He is just the man I want. Hamilton will be a great help to me.
2: As a result, 9th of November, that same year, uh, Hamilton's on his way back to South Africa. Uh, So what's facing, what are the problems Kitchener's facing? Well, he's certainly
3: feeling the strain of conducting the war in his usual way, making all the decisions himself. We've said this before about Kitchener, he doesn't delegate well, and leaving very little for his staff officers to do.
2: Yeah, but but Hamilton's got an advantage. He's had years of being Robert's right hand man, and he, he he's able to sort of circumnavigate the great man Kitchener. Uh, so, what does he do? Well, he
3: sort of circumnavigates him, and 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 he undertakes extensive staff duties on behalf of his chief, which uh, it makes him perfect to be Kitchener's chief of staff. So, what what are his priorities for him? Well, he lists them as such to reassure Kitchener that he had the full support of the War
2: Office. Mm. To take the burden of staff work and free Kitchener for operational duties. To try for a one-month armistice in the Transvaal
3: and Orange River colony to break up and demoralise the commandos.
2: And lastly, to improve the deplorable level of British musketry. It's worth pointing out, it's still
3: deplorable. So Hamilton was soon running the day-to-day details of the war, the organising of patrols between blockhouses and the sweeps of columns which he reduced from large-scale efforts to more concentrated work against particular local
2: commandos. Now Roberts is still, as Commander-in-Chief opposed, uh, of the British Army, opposed to any leniency, despite Hamilton's continued pleadings and also Kitchener's attitude. Hamilton wants to incorporate the Boers into the British Empire with the least possible delay. Uh, and as Say, Kitchener shared this view, and together the two local commanders well the Kitchener's a local commander, but Hamilton's his chief of staff, they, they try and encourage the peace process.
3: As the focus of the war centered more and more on the hunt for Boer leaders in the Western Transvaal, the British column commanders wrote to Kitchener asking if Hamilton could be sent to act as a local commander-in-chief to coordinate the work of their several columns.
2: Wow. So April 1902, Hamilton is given this task and he ends up directing 13 columns searching for these ringleaders and and he draws a net tighter and tighter around them. And and what I mean, it's becoming hopeless, isn't it? So what happens? Well, the Boer leaders realise
3: there's no point in further resistance. Kitchener seized the moment and made proposals of a generous nature. What, What sort of thing? Well, he offered, for example, to make good the losses to Boer farms and the like, which drove the wedge deeper between the moderates and the diehards in the uh, enemy delegation.
2: The end result is on 31st of May 1902, the Boer leaders, that they'd been promised representative government at the earliest possible time, uh, after the peace of design, uh, that had been won for them by Kitchener's insistence. They sign a peace treaty and that's the end of the war. So where do we leave Hamilton now then? Well, he returned to London at the very height of his fame. His victories in the
3: field were complemented by his brilliant staff work. He was highly regarded as a far-sighted thinker on military affairs. So surely he's destined
2: for the very top. We shall see, Gary. We shall see. Now, um, I want to mention, uh, we, we're coming to the end of this phase. For, for both these podcasts, we've been very reliant on several books, um, The first one is A Soldier's Life by John Lee, which is a a military biography of Hamilton. And I absolutely, it's old now, but it's brilliant. It's about 20 years old. I really recommend that. And I recommend you read that, Gary. Uh, The second one is, what is it?
3: Well, we're going to get the title correct this time. It's Listening
2: for the Drums uh, by Sir Ian Hamilton. Now, that's the main source. Yeah, of quotes from him. He wrote that in the 40s. It came out, what, 45? Uh, Four years before he died. And that's the main source of the quotes on Majuba Hill and and other things and it's a brilliant book (laughs) and for the very early stuff we use When I Was a Boy by Ian Hamilton Um, he's an interesting man and uh, we've got quite a lot of sympathy for him and it's certainly a great admiration for him there are edges to his personality I find quite difficult but I still regard him highly what do you think?
3: Well I think that's that's quite common that you know we've We've talked about bad-tempered generals, for example. There are edges to a number of them. What I like is the fact that it, it highlights the crisscrossing of uh, their paths uh, as as they arrive at the Great War. They're not just sort of dropped there by some sort of TARDIS.
2: They have a, a, a backstory. They have a
3: backstory. They have a back and a story.
2: What about a front story? And a ring. Cheers, Cheers Pete. <coughs> Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, blah. us, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, blah. Visit blah. Www. Blah. www.buymeacoffee.com/pgmh or visit
3: www.blah blah, blah 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 blah, and we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers.
1: Planning for your next trip.